to this is series session number nine in our series of fireside chats concerning class actions in Australia. My name is Peter Holloway. I'm a partner here in the disputes group of Herbert Smith Freehills in Melbourne. I'm joined today by um, Harry Edwards. Harry is also a partner in the Melbourne office of our disputes group. Uh, when Harry uh, starts to speak, as he will uh, in a moment, uh, you will very quickly detect uh, that Harry is not a native Melbourneian. Harry actually is from our London office, uh, where he has practiced for a number of years, including in the area of class actions. Harry joined us last year, 2019, uh, and has spent all of 2020 in lockdown, as have we all. Uh, we're also joined uh, today by Leah Watterson. Uh, Leah is one of the most senior of our senior associates in the Melbourne office of our disputes group. And Leah also has a, a long history uh, in um, representing clients in class sections litigation. The, the topic for the session that we have um, chosen for today is myths and misconceptions uh, about class actions. Now, those were two words are very difficult to say uh, quickly one after the other, but I've got through it for the first time. We'll see how we go uh, through the balance of the session. So it's myths and misconceptions concerning class actions uh, in Australia. We're going to start off by me throwing to um, Harry with a question, and it's a question that you often hear bandied about uh, concerning whether class actions in Australia have to be certified. So Harry, do you want to start us off? Sure, yeah. So a key point of differentiation uh, in Australian class actions from those that might be more familiar with US or Canadian class actions is that there is no class certification requirement. Uh, class certification refers to a, a court hearing at a very early stage um, around the commencement of the class action, which in which the court decides whether or not the class action should continue uh, or alternatively prevents it from going ahead. Now, the procedural rules in Australia simply provide that to commence a class action, you need seven uh, or more persons that have claims against the same person that the claims relate to um, or arise out of the same or similar or related circumstances, and that those claims give rise to a substantial common issue of law or fact. Now, in, in essence, that provides a very low bar indeed for the commencement of a class action in Australia, and it's one of the key features of the landscape here which makes class actions so prevalent. For instance, the, for the, the common issue, whilst it must be substantial, uh, it need not be um, uh, great. It, it merely needs to be real or, uh, or substantive. And finally, the courts don't weigh up the common issues against the individual issues. There is no need for the plaintiff to establish that the common issues predominate over the individual issues. Now, whilst there have been various uh, sort of law reform considerations of whether or not a class certification um, requirement ought to be uh, imposed in Australia, there are no current uh, proposals to do so. Okay, thanks, Harry. We've we've also, if I'm a group member, you know, in a proceeding uh, in Australia, what's my exposure to to legal costs? Yeah, another important thing for particularly defendants to understand: there is no group member. Uh, risk of cost consequences. It is the representative uh, plaintiff, so the person who's named uh, in the proceeding, who is uh, on the hook, so to speak, for um, the defendant's costs if they are unsuccessful in their claim. Uh, 
Now, what you will typically have in particularly a funded action is that the plaintiff, the representative plaintiff, receives an indemnity from the funder, obviously in exchange for um, a proportion of any winnings that the um, funder um, is entitled to at the end. Now, the uh, important point, I suppose, to understand from a defendant's perspective is that there is clearly a risk uh, as a result of such arrangements. Put it this way, if, if the defendant is successful at the end, it is the plaintiff who is liable for those costs. And if for whatever reason the funder is unable to make good the indemnity that has been given to that plaintiff, the defendant is um, at risk of uh, being exposed to those uh, costs. Right, it's interesting. What about this new legislation that we've got in Victoria that allows for contingency fees? Yeah, I'm sure viewers will be um, well aware of the contingency fee um, regime that's recently been introduced in Victoria. And that, of course, allows law firms to essentially step in and uh, provide uh, what is, in effect, litigation funding if a group cost order has been awarded um, by the, the court. That group cost order allows the plaintiff law firm to uh, participate in the, in the winnings of the litigation. But the trade-off for that, of course, is that the plaintiff law firm is on the hook for adverse cost orders if those arise. Right. So that's all from the perspective of the claimant side. Leah, perhaps we'll throw over to you. What about from the uh, respondent side? There must, must be all sorts of uh, myths and misconceptions. There you go. I've said it again without stuttering, <laughs> stuttered on stuttering. But what can you tell us about uh, the respondent's uh, perspective of costs? Sure. I think there are two common misconceptions. Um, and one is that the plaintiff will generally offer to provide security for costs for the defendant. And in circumstances where it is provided, that that security will be sufficient to cover the defendant's costs in the event the defendant is successful in the proceeding. Now, this is not always the case. When, you know, while security for costs may be negotiated via correspondence or maybe um, a matter for consideration where there are competing claims, it will often be the case that the defendant will need to make um, an application for security for costs. And this can be a time consuming process. Where security for costs is provided um, or ordered by the court, it may be in the form of an amount paid into court. It might be in the form of a bank guarantee or a deed poll offered by the plaintiff or the funder um, in favour of the defendant. In these circumstances, it's quite important to ensure when a deed poll is provided that the funder is in a financial position to be able to meet any adverse costs orders that may be made. In these circumstances, the funder will often disclose whether or not it has adverse costs insurance or after the event insurance. In Australia, um, after the event insurance may be sufficient in and of itself to be um, security for costs. However, that will very much depend on the terms of the policy in question. Um, interestingly, the Australian Law Reform Commission um, in its most recent report on class actions and litigation funding recommended that the Federal Court of Australia Act be amended um, 
to insert a presumption that security for costs would be provided um, in the defendant's favour in funded class action proceedings. Thanks, Leah. And I think at this point, I'm actually going to throw to myself. <laughs> and I was going to throw in a, a common myth or a misconception that I often hear uh, in, in, with people with whom I'm talking about the class actions. That concerns the trial. You, you hear uh, references to the class action and the trial of the class action, but people often have a mis misunderstanding as to what actually happens uh, in a class action trial. In fact, there's, there's an initial trial. So the first part of the class action proceeding uh, is when um, the claim of the claimant, the plaintiff or the applicant, that person's or that entity's individual claim uh, is heard and determined in the usual way. But also um, at that initial part of the trial, uh, the court deals with what are called common questions. Uh, and those are the questions which are common to the claims, not only of the named plaintiff or the named applicant, uh, but also uh, common to the claims of all of the group members. And so oftentimes there's a lot of, lot of time devoted uh, to uh, agreeing what are the common questions that the court is going to deal with at this initial phase of the trial. And it is only later, once the court has made a decision about the, on those common questions, that the claims of all the individual group members will come forward. That assumes that there's a need for them to be considered if the common questions are decided in favour of the respondent, then that will be the end of it, subject to any appeals, of course, but that might be the end of it. Um, but if the claims do, do advance and the claims of all of the group members are to come forward, they do that individually. In Australia, that's, that's a fairly rare uh, event. Uh, and why is that? Well, firstly, because most closed class actions don't go the full distance and go to trial. Um, but it's also because oftentimes there might be a settlement scheme that's implemented. So the, the claims of, of group members are considered uh, in, in that way rather than having uh, a great multitude of claims come uh, forward before the court. There are lots of other nuances of this topic. There are issues of sample group members. So if, if you find that the, the case that's presented by the plaintiff or the applicant uh, doesn't cover the field um, sufficiently, uh, there can be the addition of sample group members who bring forward another fact scenario that the court might consider uh, and might be relevant or, or more relevant for the court to determine um, some of those common questions. So they're, they're just some of the points that come out uh, in relation to that issue. I think at this point, I'm going to throw back to Leah. Um, we've all heard lots and lots and lots and some of our fireside chats have focused specifically on the issue of um, shareholder class actions. Uh, and Leah, there must be lots of myths and misconceptions. There you go, I've done it again, uh, in, in the context of um, securities class action. So can you share some of those with us? I think that the myths and misconceptions in relation to securities class actions have changed over time. Certainly, I think in the early days, there was a misconception that the allegations made by plaintiffs in Australian shareholder class actions in relation to causation were the same as the fraud on the market theory in the United States. I think that misconception has finally been corrected, um, in part due to further writing and discussion on the topic, but also because of Justice Beecher's decision in the Meyer shareholder class action, where he acknowledged that the market-based theory of causation um, articulated in that um, case was not in fact the fraud on the market 
theory. For example, in the US, pursuant to the rebuttable presumption that is the fraud on the market theory, the plaintiff is required to rely on the integrity of the market price. So anything that shows that the plaintiff did not rely on the price paid or received for the securities in the particular transaction will be sufficient to cut the chain of causation. That's not the case um, yet in Australia. The position in Australia is articulated in Maya, which is that the shareholder is required to purchase shares on the market at an inflated price. The factors which will be sufficient to cut that chain of causation um, have not yet been determined and we'll wait to see um, in further matters how, how that comes to light. For example, if the plaintiff knew that the information disclosed by the company was inaccurate and traded anyway, would that be sufficient to cut the chain of causation? We're not quite sure yet. But leaving causation to one side, I think another perhaps common misconception is that directors are commonly joined to securities class action proceedings. Now, while they may be joined, um, in our experience and looking at the shareholder class actions commenced in Australia over time, more often than not, it is the company that is the target. Where directors are joined, it will normally be in two circumstances. First, where the company is in financial distress, or secondly, where the company has joined a third party, such as an auditor or an advisor or another entity, and that third party goes and joins the directors. Now, whether or not directors are joined to securities class action proceedings, they will often have a higher level involvement in this type of class action than in other types of litigation. And that is because where there are allegations of breaches of the continuous disclosure obligations or the misleading or deceptive conduct um, obligations in the Corporations Act, the director's views on the company's financial position at a given time or the matters that they took into account before releasing forecasts and the like will be um, you know, quite relevant to the court's determination of the issues in those proceedings. Thanks, uh, Leah. Harry, I might throw to you at that point. What's the position in the UK uh, by way of contrast? What's been your experience with the involvement of directors in uh, class actions in the UK? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, some of the causes of action in the UK do not allow claim to be brought against directors, only the issuer is, is capable of being sued. But where um, it is open for the claimants to join in the, the directors, we've seen it very commonly done. And I think um, there's no sort of real reason to do so often as a matter of law, because um, the company will either be directly liable or, or vicariously liable for the conduct of their directors. But it may well be the case that the inclusion of the directors on the claim form is to either in absolutely ensure that the DNO insurance that such directors might have is it actively engaged. But actually, more prosaically, it might simply be to absolutely ensure, like Leah says, that the directors show up in court and that the shareholders have their day in court to cross-examine um, those directors. I'm uh, reminded of a 
very high profile class action in the UK, which I took to trial a couple of years ago, where the chairman of the, the issuer was cross-examined for two days. And for both of those two days, the claimant's lawyers had bussed in a bunch of shareholders to fill the court with what can only be described as a pretty disgruntled audience for the purposes of that cross-examination. And it was pretty, it was pretty transparent what the claimant lawyers were trying to achieve by that little uh, exercise. Uh, Leo, I might throw back to you. You mentioned a moment ago in the context of securities class actions that oftentimes they're based upon something that the company has said in a uh, metaphorical sense, of course, but uh, with an ASX announcement or something like that. There must be lots of myths and misconceptions around that topic. Mm, yes, certainly. One example of a misconception is that to be actionable in a securities class action, the company's statement must be in an ASX announcement. Now, that is not correct. The statement or conduct alleged could occur at an AGM, on a call with analysts or in other presentations given by the company. It's also important to keep in mind that many of the securities class actions occur in scenarios where the allegation relates to what the company did not say, so a failure to disclose or an omission. A second myth is that to be actionable, forward-looking statements must be numerical forecasts. Now, that is also not correct. Many securities class actions involve forward-looking statements for example, statements about the prospects of the business or the plans for the business going forward. Any statement that relates to a future matter can pose a risk for a corporation. Under the Corporations Act, any forward-looking statements must be made on reasonable grounds, otherwise they can be found to be misleading. Many of our clients will recall that in the um, Meyer shareholder class action, the statements that were subject to scrutiny by the court were made on a call with um, financial journalists and analysts. And they included general statements such as, we will therefore not only have anticipated sales growth, but anticipated profit growth this year. Again, here there was no mention of an amount of that growth or a percentage um, of that profit. So good disclosure policies and good preparation ahead of company meetings and presentations um, are quite um, essential. That, that takes us into another related topic, and that is that oftentimes when those matters, the company announcement is being, being made the subject of a class section, there might in parallel be an investigation by um, ASIC. Uh, and so that often gives rise to what seems to be uh, a commonly held view that if, if there is an ASIC proceeding, a prosecution, a civil penalty proceeding or something of that nature on foot, then that uh, automatically has priority over a civil proceeding uh, like the class section. Harry, is that something that you've observed or something that you can comment upon? Yeah, I mean, you can absolutely see the, the common scenario of a, a regulatory investigation or findings being made and the promoters of class actions uh, jumping upon those findings and using that as a very fertile ground to find allegations which can support a class action. But it certainly isn't always the case, and we've certainly seen class actions coming first, 
with regulatory proceedings either not happening at all or, or coming somewhat later. And that is in part because of the, I guess, the competitive landscape for the commencement of those class actions and the fact that there are promoters of class actions out there who are seeking to identify opportunities to bring class actions um, in and of itself without just waiting for regulatory findings to be um, uh, put in place. I should say there's one sort of emerging trend on this issue, which may well give a, an additional avenue for class action promoters to explore, and that is the potential uh, in, in uh, introduction of a deferred prosecution uh, agreement regime in Australia, which is currently being considered by the, the federal government. Now, as part of that process, it's uh, very likely that some statement of facts will need to be agreed by the company in order to allow it to enter into that deferred prosecution agreement with obvious benefits from the criminal side of things. But of course, that statement of facts will provide yet further fertile ground for promoters to comb through in order to potentially launch class actions. And we've seen that very commonly in the UK where we've had deferred prosecutions uh, for a number of years and several class actions commencing directly as a result um, of companies entering into such agreements. That's interesting. Well, I think that's about all we've got time for on, on this occasion. So for this fireside chat, I think we'll, we'll draw to a close. So hopefully you've found uh, these myths and misconceptions uh, have been now resolved in your mind and that you are no longer um, uh, subject to any of these misunderstandings. If there's any topics that anyone viewing uh, this fireside chat would like us to address in future sessions, by all means, uh, reach out and let us know. Uh, but thank you, uh, Harry, and thank you, Leah, and thank you for tuning in.